Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. scripture comes to us from Mark 7 verses 1 through 23. It's a little long. If you guys want to turn there with me or open up that Bible app. (laughs) The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and some saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, there are... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciple asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Do you not see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The word of the Lord. I don't know about what you guys did on New Year's Eve, but on New Year's Eve, I actually went to a recovery meeting. And I decided, well, I should end my year with what I value. 
you know, finish my year strong, do the thing that has given me success throughout the preceding year in hopes that it would continue me forward. Um, and so what we do in these meetings frequently, for those of you who have not been there, is, is we, we talk, we share, which is like a dangerous word for some of you, I know. We share. And my job in those meetings is to share my experience, strength, and hope. It's to give a bit of encouragement. It's to talk about where I came from and what I've done to uh, trust in my higher power, God, Jesus Christ, and to move forward uh, as I seek to live the life that God has always intended me to live. So uh, what I often give in terms, of, um, in terms of encouragement, in terms of things that I learned, relate to making what we do in these meetings Focusing on the inside, let's put it that way. Focusing on the inside. Uh, the meeting I went to on Friday was actually uh, at a rehab, and so there were a lot of people from the rehab who were working through their program, trying to overcome any myriad of addictions that we would ta- normally talk about, and some we probably wouldn't talk about. And so my encouragement to them was to internalize the things that they were learning, was take the sort of tasks of rehab and make them about the heart instead of just ticking a box. So I'll give you, for instance, when I was in rehab, uh, I had to write down a lot of information about my life, who I was, where I came from, things that triggered me, what happened. So I could look back and I could say, well, there's a pattern here, right? Or I got up every day and made my bed. Sometimes people ask me, you know, what do I do for a successful life? How do I stay clean? First thing you do, make your bed in the morning. It's one success upon which the rest of the successes of your day can be built. It seems like a very basic thing. It's a really external behavior, but it does have some effect. You know, what we tend to do and what people in rehab tend to do, what I tend to do, is we focus on the external behaviors in an attempt to change the internal state. We don't feel good. You know, the other day I cleaned my bedroom. I mean, I scrubbed it. Lane was like cheering me on like a cheerleader. She was like, yeah, go boy, you do what you got to do. I didn't feel good inside. So what I did is I attempted to make myself feel better by scrubbing my bedroom down as clean as I could get it. You know, we know the term cleanliness is next to godliness or when we're in a house and we're uh, surrounded by clutter, we feel cluttered on the inside. We attempt to address things externally, internally with an external behavior. You know, we seek to affect this even in our religious life sometimes. You know, we, these bleed into the sort of traditions that we hold from time to time as we find ways to feel better about ourselves by utilizing some tradition. Now, before, I know I'm going to get emails talking about tradition. I already got a, pre, a preemptive email, okay, about talking about traditions. Hear me. Not all traditions are bad. Not all traditions are bad. Let me give you a few examples. From time to time, we will light Advent candles at the time of Advent. Advent candles are not sinful. Fasting during Lent is not sinful. Saying the Lord's Prayer in church, I know this is going to be revolutionary, saying the Lord's Prayer together in church is not sinful. And um, perhaps my favorite is when we read God's Word and we say the Word of God, and then everyone looks awkwardly at one another and doesn't say anything, when everyone knows what we're supposed to say is thanks be to God, for fear that there is a traditional encroachment upon what we believe, but not all traditions are bad. When we're asking ourselves what tradition is bad, we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why am I doing this tradition? Why am I doing any behavior? Is it an attempt to deal with something on the inside by doing something on the the outside 
And we can find that we sometimes will be doing things for the wrong reason. So let me say it like this in terms of our thesis statement for this morning. Self-righteous religious traditions are sinful and dangerous. Could you give me a glass of water? Thank you. Now, we need to under... A whole bottle of it. Thank you, honey. We need to understand this for several reasons. First, we will depend on the wrong thing for our righteousness. We'll come to church on a Sunday morning and think that this makes us more godly. Or we will begin to get up earlier and earlier in the morning in order to read God's word because someone erroneously told us that if we wake up in the pre-dawn hours to read the Bible, we're somehow more righteous. Or our day, we're going to actually float across the surface of the ground instead of actually walking on the earth like a regular person. Um, We need to be careful because we will expect more out of others than God expects out of us. Not only will we get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to read our Bible, we'll tell others, you should get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and read your Bible. Then when I as the pastor say, well, I read my Bible at 10 o'clock, or I read my Bible when I feel like God's calling me to read my Bible, there's a deep word sense of pastors get up at 4 in the morning. Those shepherds should be up praying for the sheep before the sheep even get up. And the heap, subtly, condemnation on somebody who doesn't worship the same way. But perhaps the most important risk is that self-righteous religious tradition are directly opposed to the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ came, lived, and died for us so that we would not be tethered to self-righteous acts in order to find justification, in order to find our forgiveness or okayness before God. So in today's text... Mark 7, we're going to see that Jesus, we've already heard, that Jesus was confronted by some of the Pharisees who seek to discredit him by discrediting his disciples in the way that they practice their religion. It's really a question of what was called the oral law. So if we read in the Old Testament, we see that Moses went up on Mount Sinai, that God delivered to him the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Okay, That's the written law. Jews also believe that there was something given on that mountain called the oral law. Okay, Those are the laws that were not written in the Old Testament, were not written on the tablets of stone, but somehow came to be ways that Jews were expected to live righteously before God. We read about it this morning. It included things like washing our hands, of, doing, of avoiding certain things, of being around certain things, of worshiping a certain way. So Jesus expre- addresses their misunderstanding of God's word. And in doing so, uh, or the way that they elevated uh, the elders' traditions over the plain word of God. So let's look at this briefly. Uh, go through a couple of these. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw that his disciples were eating without washing their hands. Eating without washing their hands. Giving their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So they approach Jesus with an observation. Why are you not doing what we do? Now, this is interesting. In the Old Testament, nowhere does... Well, let me rephrase that. In only two places does it say that anyone is supposed to wash their hands. The first place is if someone touches some sort of bodily discharge, you wash your hands. I mean, that's even obvious to us today. We wash our hands. The second piece was priests and Levites, those working within the temple. 
Before they approached God to offer a sacrifice to him, they were commanded to ceremonially cleanse themselves, including washing their hands. It also included sometimes a complete bath, okay, called a mikvah, a complete bath. All right? it, but it's interesting to note that only the priests were commanded to wash their hands before approaching God. By the time the Pharisees come around, it became something much more than just the priests. It turned into, well, if the priests wash their hands before offering a sacrifice, then it's better if everyone washes their hands. You see, but this law was never prescribed for the average person. It was only prescribed for the priests. Why did these things come about? How did we get from the scripture saying, wash our hands, or the Old Testament, wash, the priests wash their hands before giving a sacrifice, to this, where everyone washes their hands before eating anything? Well, there's two, and these are important for us. The first was a response to a culture clash, okay? The Jews had lived in Israel being continually encroached by Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, the surrounding nations, and they imported some of their way of life into the nation of Israel. As a response, the Jews pushed harder, leaned more into what they believed in the Old Testament. And by doing so, they actually made more laws. They made it harder. Right? So if nobody, if none of the Gentiles wash their hands before they eat, we're going to wash our hands a hundred times as a means of distinction, a way of being separate and different. It's kind of like this. Uh, James, what's his name? James Edwards? Yeah, James Edwards, a biblical scholar, wrote this. He says, think of it like this. He says, imagine you're working somewhere and someone at work gets in trouble. They do something bogus, they get fired. That tendency that you would feel in your heart to distance yourself from the fired person in order to not take the heat from the boss is the same sort of sense that the Jews felt here when interacting with Gentiles. They believed that the Gentiles were under the condemnation of God. And in order to distance themselves from condemnation from God themselves, they distanced themselves from the Gentiles. So they sought to remain different and distinct. But the Old Testament laws in the Torah were given in the face of a culture clash. Remember, the Jews were being brought into Canaan and it was going to be a nation, nations full of peoples who believed differently. And God said, this is how you're going to live differently. It only included the priests wash their hands, not everybody. Nevertheless, for the Jews, it turned into something of an ethnic, racial, and religious issue of superiority. We're better than them because this is what we do. So that's the first reason that these laws sort of got out of hand. The second reason is really important for us because it relates to understanding the way we worship ourselves. In Deuteronomy 30, God brought the Jews out of Egypt and into Israel. And he said that if you do these commandments, if you live according to the covenant, you will find blessing. But if you disobey the covenant and you live according to the laws of the Canaanites, you're going to find curses. And so... This became a pattern in the life of Israel as we read throughout the scripture. So in order to prevent that from happening, the invasion of outside people, the uh, pestilence, the, the plagues, the things that happened within Israel as a result of their disobedience to the covenant, they began doing a thing called insulating the commandment. Okay? They would say, well, if God said that the priest should, not wa or should wash their hands before offering a sacrifice, then that means that must be the godly thing to do. I mean, they're priests after all. So lest we accidentally misunderstand what that means, we are going to heap up additional rules again and again and again in order to prevent us from reaching to that core law 
that says that priests must wash their hands before offering the sacrifice. What started probably as a good impulse turned into something sinful because their motivation had changed. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? You know, it's not that they didn't recognize that these things were traditions. In fact, they did. But they simply asked, why do you not hold to them? Why don't you do what we do? But Jesus sees through their question, and he says something really significant. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Could you imagine standing there before Jesus and that, him saying that to you? Isaiah prophesied when he, or Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the first point for this morning, we're going to move quickly through these. Self-righteous religious traditions breed hypocrisy. They elevate personal preferences over God's prescriptions. Let's talk about some of them. We all know these, right? So the other day, a couple weeks ago, we had a baby shower down in the activity center, and we had a mariachi band, right? And I was laughing with somebody. I said, this might be the first time that there's a mariachi band playing down in the activity center. Someone said, this might be the first time there's any band playing down in the activity center. We make this distinction within the church, and we've been around for a long time. We've gone through these waves of understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Outside music, electric guitar. I don't know if we've ever had electric guitar up on stage. We would somehow look down upon some of those things, wouldn't we? We would say over time or in our own life, we would say, I like a certain preference or style of music over another because one seems more godly than the other one. Or dancing. Dancing. Or another one. How about what clothes we wear? I'm wearing jeans, hiking shoes, and a regular old shirt. I look like plain old Adam, right? I look like plain old Adam. But there is no doubt that some of us have a certain idea of what is acceptable clothing for church and what is not acceptable clothing for church. Let me be honest with you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say what type of clothing is prescribed for church. Okay? But we have a tendency as believers, as people in our lives, to create additional rules on top of what God has said. Do you remember last week? I think it was last week, when we talked about Jesus saying, all of you come to me who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for my, my load is light and my yoke is easy. And I'm me saying, I wonder why does that, <laughs> that, my life doesn't feel like that. It's because we've been doing it wrong. We're heaping up additional rules and additional laws on ourselves, more so than God is asking us. More so than God is asking us. We elevate what we want over what God wants for it. And the worst part about it is we tend to disregard God's word when we do it. We tend to disregard God's word. We elevate some sins over others, don't we? We have like the little sins and the big sins. You know what I'm talking about. There's some sins that we'll say, oh, those are big, big sins. But then never address things like arrogance, self-righteousness, hatred, you know, uh, sexual immorality, all of these things within our own hearts. Because we have an idea of the way things should be and we think better than God. We filter out those sins that strike too closely to our own hearts and egos in order to focus on the sins of others. In doing so, we disregard God's word. Or we tend to improve upon God's will. This is my favorite one. Well, if this, God says this is good, then adding to it must make it that much better. We think of, 
this is interesting. I think we sometimes think of breaking God's commandments as either not doing something God has asked us to do or doing something he has told us not to do. When in truth, it is also adding to the commandment of God and expecting others to live accordingly. God has already established what it is that he expects from us, and by adding to it or taking away, we're really breaking God's law. Because both stem from the same heart, that we know better than God. Thank you. Now, the word hypocrite. We all know the word hypocrite, right? We say it's somebody who does something or says not to do something and then does it themselves. Someone who, who doesn't practice what they preach. But the word hypocrite in the New Testament has a little bit of a different nuance that I think is important. The word hypocrite in English actually comes from the Greek word. That's the exact same. What it means is a play actor. Somebody on stage who's wearing a mask. That's what the biblical idea of hypocrisy is. It's not somebody who preaches one thing and then doesn't practice. It's a pretender. I don't know about for you guys, but when I read that and I understood that, the word hypocrite suddenly got driven a lot closer to home than what I had read before. I mean, how many of us have lived life like that? We're thinking one thing, but we're behaving in another way because we are pretending to be something or someone that we are not. We don't feel like doing what God wants us to do, so we just pretend that we're doing it before others and sometimes even worse, before God. And we often rail against the very thing that we do in secret, pretending before others sometimes making it seem easy instead of confessing to those who are struggling with the similar sins that we are, that it's, it's hard. It's I'm there with you. I get it. It's hard. Jesus gives an example of their hypocrisy. He uses the word Corbin. This is a word that probably we only know from the New Testament, and many of us probably don't even know it at all. It means a dedicated gift to God. It's like a deferred gift. So when we talk about giving sometimes, it would be dedicating something we own now to be given to the church after we die. Okay, deferred giving. It would be like pledging a certain amount to pay down the church's mortgage, you know, the freedom campaign. And then one of your parents becoming gravely ill, having no insurance and needing money in order to survive. And then telling your parents, I'm sorry, I can't give you this money because it's dedicated to the freedom campaign. Why would we do that? Well, the Pharisees did this all the time and told people that once you gave it to the temple, You had to leave it at the temple. If you took it away, it was striking against God himself. It was a sinful thing to do, which, of course, this was never in the Bible. And so they heaped additional condemnation upon people. So they broke God's law, thou shalt honor your mother and father, by elevating their own commands above it. And Jesus rails against this. He goes on to say, they worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. Not only do self-righteous traditions breed hypocrisy, but they are also ineffective. It says they worship me in vain. Self-righteous religious traditions are ineffective. They do not justify us. The word justify means to make us right with God. Uh, The way I remembered it is it's just as if. Justification means just as if we had not sinned. Restored to approval and perfection before God. These rules that we try to follow, they don't make us any more right with God than if we didn't follow them because Jesus is the only one who makes us right with God. 
Jesus is the only one who can make us justified before the Father and stand approved and accepted. Not anything we do, not taking communion, not going to church more often, reading our Bible earlier in the morning, not, you know, and, and then not not doing certain sins. I don't swear, I don't cuss, I don't, you know, all these things. That does not justify us, only Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says that no one is justified in God's sight by works of the law. If God's own law cannot justify us, what makes us think man's laws can justify us? We'll make additional laws in order to make ourselves feel better. Maybe you sense this in your own life. Have you ever sinned? And then suddenly you get up from your sin and you work harder to be a better Christian to make up for the sin that you sinned before? God wants you to put that behavior away, that pattern away, because Jesus Christ has justified us, not what we do. Only Christ can do this, and he commands us to put our feeble and impossible attempts to justify ourselves and simply embrace the justification that he's given to us by grace through faith. Finally, they're also ineffective because they do not make us holy. You guys might feel like I'm off today. I started taking a medication. It's making my mouth dry, and it's really throwing me off, so I'm totally distracted. And so I apologize. Okay, self-righteous religious traditions do not make us holy. They do not make us more set apart to God. They do not make us better people. They do not make us better Christians. All they can do is make us trust in something other than Jesus Christ. You know, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're immediately made right with God. And we are immediately set apart, set apart. So it's as if the moment that we believe God takes us from one camp, and places us in another camp, the holy camp, this camp. Just uh, doing these traditions cannot make us more holy. They cannot make us more set apart. All right, third point. Self-righteous religious traditions are contagious. They're contagious. We seek to impute our preferences upon others, and he'll heap guilt and shame upon those who follow Jesus differently. We should not be adding burdens that Christ has not given to us. I think we do this all the time. I talk to people who have been in the church at some point and have left the church at some point. They might even still believe, but they do not affiliate with churches. And we ask, and I ask them, well, why don't you? Of course I want them to come to church and reap the blessing of what it means to be part of a family to be together as brothers and sisters. And it's not perfect, but it's definitely better than the world. <laughs> and so I ask them, and frequently what they say is something like, well, people are too judgy, or they, and it's usually associated with some issue, like I said, like what they wore, what their hair looked like, how they did a certain thing, you know, all these things. And so they leave the church. When we look at our self-righteous traditions, when we look at the way that we think that God should be worshipped that goes above and beyond what God himself has said about how we should be worshipped, we end up spreading that disease to other people and it give, it's bitter in their mouth. It's bitter in their mouth. And we don't want that. Certainly not for them and definitely not for ourselves. Following Jesus is hard enough. I mean, let's be honest. If we took God at his word and lived the best that we could, trusting in God's grace, but living the best that we could according to what God has already revealed in his word, that's difficult enough. 
But we seek to have additional things. You know, like, a, you know, God said, you know, thou shalt not have lustful thoughts in your mind towards somebody else. And that one's a hard one to defend against, isn't it? We've all struggled in that way somehow. So inst- what we'll say is we'll say, well, that's hard, but instead I'll come to church early, read my Bible extra so I can make up for this one. That's not how God has asked us to live. We confuse others' expectations of us with God's expectations of us. Well, if I come to church, I'm supposed to dress a certain way, even though God has not called me to dress this way, even though it really doesn't matter. Because God sees the heart. I've had people tell me, you, dre- you really dressed appropriately today. Thank you. What about every other day that I come up here? I don't know about you, but I'm dressed in the robes of Jesus, and they're white. So you see this, but God sees something completely different. Or ripped jeans. Several years ago, someone was up here playing their, you got ripped jeans before I make a fool of you? Okay. Someone was up here in the worship band wearing, a, had a rip in front of their knee. I heard about it, like, from three or four people. The rip don't matter. This matters. This makes Christianity hard and bitter. Standing before God, trusting and fully embracing the justification and righteousness that God has given us, that is what sets us free. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want your burden to be light and the yoke to be easy? Don't you want to live a life of joy getting up and knowing that there's nothing I can do to make God love me less, and more importantly, nothing I can do to make him love me more. That is exactly as I am. Even with the sins I commit, God loves me to the max, 100%. And he's calling me back to fellowship with him. That our sin does not throw us away from God in the eternal sense, but creates a wedge between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter. We carry these burdens about what it means to be religious and what it means to be a Christian, and they do nothing in the end. And then we spread them to others. Listen, in the end, we're going to have to give an account of ourselves. We're not going to be able to give an account of, of everybody else around us. <laughs> I say that with the exception of me. I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account as to, for you guys. It's terrifying to me. So go easy on me and go easy on the elders. We have to stand before God one day and explain why we did what we did. Did we shepherd you well? Did we love you well with Christ's love? Did we do what we thought was best given what we know about God and given what we know about you? So the Pharisees come. Jesus uses the Pharisees' question as a teaching moment for the people. Notice he does not, as we read this, he does not try to fix the Pharisees' mind, to change their minds. Instead, he goes to the people. He says again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone who understands this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. The Pharisees were hardened. There was no way that Jesus could teach them and suddenly break through their heart. It was obvious that they didn't want to hear it. So Jesus turns to the people. Turns to the people. You know, we can be really hardened in our own perspective and preference. Like, I know there are people, I've already said something that irritated somebody. I'm 100%. 100%. We can be really hardened in our perspective sometimes, and I'm not immune from this either. 
But this is why the contagion of self-righteous religious tradition is so dangerous. We harden our heart to what we think is right and then expect others to do it as well. And entire organizations can be plagued by this. We're lucky here at GBC. We really are lucky here. But I hear stories all the time about other churches who struggle with this idea of adding the thou shalt, you know, like the 11th commandment and the 12th commandment and the 13th commandment. And they continue to make life as a believer harder and harder, whether or not that's only reading from a certain type of scripture or whether or not that's wearing certain type of clothing or doing a certain thing. But we're lucky. It says, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him this parable, <laughs> Uh, about this parable. Are you in Jesus? I love how Jesus said this. Are you so dull? Have you not get it? How long do you have to be with me to get it that this is a heart issue? This is an inside job. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles him. Listen to what he says. I want you to listen to this list. It's what comes out of a person is that defiles them, for it is from within, out of the person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Listen to this list and let this list, let this list sink in. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, which by the way Jesus calls hatred of your brother or sister. Adultery, which by the way Jesus says looking with lust upon somebody of the opposite sex. Greed, malice. Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He says all of these evils come from with inside and these defile a person. Now, I don't know about you, but it's real easy for me to get on that list. The thing about our hearts is so sneaky. It's like, I'm on the list now. That's why I got to get real honest about what's happening inside. That's why we all have to be honest, confess to the Lord about where our heart really is. Because we can look at that list and say, well, technically, no, I haven't broken any of those things, and be bogus on every single one of them. It's an inside job. Our faith is about the inside, and God's asking us to look to the inside. True to form, disciples ask for clarity. They've lived in the perspective that pharisaical tradition equals righteousness because it's been expected of them. Jesus meets that perspective firmly by asking them, are you dull? fourth point for this morning. We're done. Self-righteous religious traditions do not address core issues. External sanctions do not prevent sin. They actually increase it. Saying, uh, how many of you parents have told your kids, don't touch this thing? And it's like, as soon as you walk out, well, the fact that you told them, they're going to touch it. There's whole studies on it. It's like kid in front of a table. There's a piece of candy. Don't touch this button. I'm going to leave for a minute or two. I'm going to come back. If you don't touch this button, you can have three pieces of candy when I get back. We would rather have one piece of candy and touch the button than three pieces of candy and have to wait. It just goes to show you how thou shalt not affects us. How it affects us. Paul says the same thing in the book of Romans, that the law was given to show us that we were sinful. Right? I mean, it seems like obvious to me, and maybe it does to you, that as soon as I get told you can't do something, it's like, well, why not? I want to do it. It's because it's what our heart is made of we attempt to find righteousness from the outside in. We attempt to find righteousness from the outside in, but it's an inside job. This is another reason, yet another reason I'm going to get emails, but legislating morality is ineffective. 
making laws that do something to say thou shalt not, in the end, they might prevent the behavior, but they do not change the heart. They do not change the heart. Here in the American political system, we're all about trying to make new laws to prevent some sort of behavior or to allow some sort of behavior. And then we get frustrated why it continues to happen or new ways are found to make what we do or do not want happen. Listen, we have a really deep and abiding call as Christians to be changing people's hearts, to be speaking the gospel to people's hearts. It's the heart that has to be changed. We look at our behaviors, religious or otherwise, and they are an expression of what's really going on on the inside. If we're not really careful, we can put the cart before the horse when dealing with our sin and our walk with Christ. We each have a sinful heart from which sinful thoughts spring. No one is exempt. When we look to behaviors and self-righteous religious traditions as the measure of our goodness, we forget that it's Christ who justifies us. It's easy for us to say, and I hear it all the time from some of us, things like, they don't say it like this, but those sinners over there instead of this sinner right here. There's a shirt I saw. It's fun. I mean, it's funny. But it's basically just in big white print. Y'all need Jesus. Okay? Y'all need Jesus. All right. It's a funny shirt because it has a funny phrase that, we, that many of us know. The truth is, is the shirt should be, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. It's my heart that's defiled. It's my heart that's sinful. It's your heart that's sinful. And all of you need Christ. We all need Christ. All right. I'm going to say one more thing and sit down, so I'm going to pick which one I want to say. The pandemic, as difficult as it is, it's not our world's biggest problem. We have a heart problem, and it's terminal. And we're unable to heal it ourselves. We need Christ. As you're as we start this year, as you're looking at how am I going to live my life differently, how am I going to, you know, like for instance, uh, in our house we were talking about doing a, it started with a 30-day Bible reading plan. Through the Bible in 30 days, okay? That's like three hours of reading a day, all right? Trying to get just a, an overview of all of God's word because we read it in such little pieces. It's hard to understand what's really going on overall. So we're like, okay, let's do 30 days Bible reading plan. Then it was like, well, wait, <laughs> Let's do 90 days. 90 days gets to about an hour a day or so, which is much more manageable. And now I'm thinking like, well, what about 365 days Bible reading plan? What it really boils down to is why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Am I doing it out of a deep desire to understand God and his will better or am I doing it because I think I'm somehow going to be changed for the better? That I'm somehow going to earn some righteousness before God? And so we need to look at our hearts. We need to constantly be reflecting on our thoughts, motivations, desires, and address them with the gospel of grace and not these external religious behaviors or traditions because self-righteous religious traditions breed hypocrisy. They're ineffective, they're contagious, and they do not address core issues. All right, next week, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be, God willing, God willing, on a beach in Costa Rica. Okay. 
I will miss you guys. It's true. I will actually miss you guys. But man, that beach is calling me right now. That beach is calling me. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I need rest. I need rest. I need to just, and we all have been there. This is my moment. And so right now we're going to pray, okay? We're going to pray for today's communion elements. We're going to pray for our own hearts. We're going to pray that the Lord will show us what true Sabbath means. We are going to, and we're going to start this year right, okay? We're going to start this year right. All right, does anyone not have a communion uh, cup that would like to take communion this morning? If you do not, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Bob, I think we're good. Everybody's got one. Nope. Keeping us honest. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just, we love you. We love you. And Lord, we realize and admit that there are times that we just pretend with our Christianity. We pretend. There are times that we act as hypocrites and just wear a mask because we believe it's what we need to do to make you love us more. But Lord, remind us every single moment that we are tempted to do that, that it's because of what Jesus has done. It's because of what Jesus has done that we are found acceptable and perfect in your sight. We thank you, Lord, for his life that, that he so willingly gave to us, that we could put down our works and just simply trust. Lord, as we celebrate communion here in a moment, and we remember what Jesus did on our behalf, we pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to put it down. Put down those things that we're doing to make us more right. Put down those things that we prefer when they strike at uh, the gospel of grace. Help us to put down those things that we prefer when it prevents one of your children from coming to you. We pray, Lord, that this year would be different for us. These last two years have been so hard, and we pray, Lord, that 2022 would be different. That even in the face of more difficulties and struggles, Lord, that we could just let go and trust you. That we could just live our lives being, you know, basking in your gaze upon us and trusting in Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for everything that we need. We thank you, Lord, for these elements, for this this bread and this juice, and we ask, Lord, that as we take them, you would reveal to each one of us through your Holy Spirit what is the true thought and motivation and intent of our heart. Give us the grace, Lord, to trust Christ and so be changed. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.